0: October 13th, 2013, lecture discussion number 127. And yes, uh, we are still traipsing, trudging through the 22nd chapter of the book of Psalms. It's slow going. I realized that. I was mentioning to someone, or actually Dave told me that uh, I started the Psalm 22 at lecture 118. And now here we are at 127. You do the math while I keep going here. But um, if you have not, and I say this to everyone as much as I can, if you have not kept up with this particular portion, I encourage you more than I ever do to go back and at least uh, pick up the highlights from those other lectures starting at uh, 118, Dave, is that correct? Okay, either 118 or 119, somewhere in there, and 119 probably is more applicable, but Dave is saying to uh, go to 118. And we don't argue with Dave very often. So, uh, but pick those up. And I realize that that's tough. But I cannot repeat everything every Sunday. I have to keep moving or we'll never go anywhere if I just try to get you all there. But my goal is, is obvious, I hope. It's to get you where you need to be with regard to Psalm 22. We'll get to that in a minute. And again, I realize it's a tedious approach, uh, but I cannot uh, omit any of the essential pieces And there are just so many essential pieces in Psalm 22. And if you read commentators and scholars of the Bible, published scholars, they focus on Psalm 22.1, which is fine, and they should, because Jesus Christ selected it out. He's the author, the Word, obviously. He knows it's there, but nonetheless, of all of the verses of the Old Testament... That could have been chosen, not really because he's omniscient, so he chooses what he chooses. But from our, from the human standpoint, this is the one that he selects out and quotes from the cross. It's his fourth saying of his seven sayings from the cross, and it's the first of his two definitely, deafeningly loud sayings. In other words, these are the two. This is the first of the two that he. I can't do it justice. He says it in such a loud voice that we can't reproduce it. So let me repeat that. The fourth saying of his seventh saying from the cross is 22, one of Psalms. And it's the first of his two deafening uh, loud sayings. Now, if those that makes sense to you, the fourth of his seventh, the first of, his, of the two, the fourth being his first, the seventh being his second. Did I say the seventh being his second? I did If that makes sense to you, then you're well on your way to solving Psalm 22. Again, he has seven sayings. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. The fourth is Psalm 22. The seventh is, Father, I'm sending you my spirit. Who gets to to say that? Only God himself could say that. So these two are said in a voice so loud that it was painful and terrifying. So seven sayings. The fourth saying, the first of the two that are loud. And if you, if that makes sense, if you've got that, at least you're on your way to solving why he said it, why he said everything, frankly. And I'm doing Psalm 22. I'm taking time to do it um, uh, at the during the hunting season at the end of the summer because um, I know I know this uh, class very well now after all these years. And I know uh, that this is a good time to do it, because some have heard it before, and and, um, anyway, there's so much uh, transition going on. But Psalm 22, specifically 22.1, the first verse, is universally completely misunderstood, and it is almost always taught wrong. I am stunned when it is taught right, and I am not stunned very often. And if my mail from the internet is um, is indicative, and I think that it is uh, absolutely accurate, the people that are listening to this series are telling me, where is where where did you find this? Where can I find it? It has died out probably thousands of years ago, and it takes a lot of research. And usually I get questions on Psalm 22 from people that um, don't know my position on it. They'll come up to me after a class or a lecture and they'll say things like this. Why did God abandon Jesus? Or they'll say, why did Jesus fear his own death? And those questions, those two, those examples that I'm giving you are simultaneously blasphemy, heresy, and apostasy. If you ever say, why did God abandon Jesus, or why did Jesus fear death, you have hit all three, blasphemy, heresy, and apostasy. That's not easy to do, but you've done it. In other words, those two questions that I just gave you as examples that I get a lot from people who want to know about Psalm 22.1, those are the perfect opposite of the truth. You can't get any more wrong than that. Why did God abandon Jesus? You should. God can't abandon himself. Jesus is God. Why did God abandon God is absurd. And to imply that Jesus is somehow not God is blasphemy, heresy, apostasy, falsehood, evil. It's declared as evil in the scripture. Why did Jesus fear death? Uh, same. Does God fear death? It's impossible. He's omnipotent God. He has no fear. He certainly has total control over death. And so again, those questions simultaneously. Blasphemy, heresy, and apostasy. Which means what now? That's probably why they're the most common questions that get asked in the church today. And, and as you know, those of you who have been coming the last few weeks, uh, uh, hopefully you know, the correct question would be similar to this. Let me make room for it so I can write it, portion 7. The correct question would be this, why did the Lord God Almighty, or the more correct question, why did the Lord God Almighty, the omnipotent creator of all things, select the first verse of the song, that is Psalm 22, that is titled, The Hind of the Morning, and shouted out at the precise exact time during his crucifixion that he did? And I've said many times, if you understand that Psalm 22 has a title to it, and the title is The the Hind of the Morning, right now that puts you in the one percentile of all Bible students in the world. Meaning 99% do not know the title of that psalm is The Hind of the Morning. I was, um, really briefly, I was looking at uh, some of our internet uh, stuff. I try to do that on Saturdays. As much as I can. I don't have time during the week. And um, Jennifer from Arizona, uh, you all remember her. Um, she had found a, a song called The Hind of the Morning. She found the, or it was set to music. And remember I asked uh, that somebody should eventually do that, I think. And somebody apparently has done it. They don't really understand what the hind of the morning means, I don't believe. But uh, nonetheless, at least somebody's trying out there. But why did God quote the song, this first verse of a song called or entitled The Hind of the Morning? uh, Why did he do it as his fourth saying? And asking the right questions is critical to understanding what God is thinking while he's on the cross and what God is doing while he is on the cross and why God is thinking and what he is thinking and doing what he... While he's doing it, at the time he's thinking and doing it, the right question really makes everything unfold for you. And if what I just said made sense, see me later. We'll have to notify family members and get you some therapy. But I hope you get the point. You will not figure out what God is doing from the cross, why he's doing it, what he's thinking while he's doing it, and what makes him do what he's doing, and his motives, his processes. And that's what he wants us all to do, is to figure him out. And if you don't get those right questions, you'll never figure him out, and and off you'll go. Anyway, ultimately, this becomes a discussion on the immutability of God. If you're familiar with the doctrine of uh, God being immutable. What does that mean? The immutability, it means that God is unchanging. He is always the same. And Hebrews 13.8, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's said about Christ. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13.8. Now, that's very important to know. When you're reading the Bible, especially when you're evaluating why, what his motive was for saying uh, the, hind, the first verse of the song, the hind of the morning from the cross. 13.8 Hebrews. I, I want you also, you'll notice that these are kind of paired up. Hebrews 13.5, 13.8, and actually 13.9. If you know anything in Hebrews if you know those 3 you're going to be in really good shape memorize 13:5 and 13:9 and and know that I'm sorry 13:5 and 13:8 and know that 13:9 is right there and you're going to you're going to eliminate or avoid memorize I'm not much for memorizing as you know but memorize 13:5 memorize 13:8 and know about 13:9 if you will memorize those two you're going to uh Get rid of, avoid at least 90% of all doctrinal error. Just right with those two. 13.5, as you remember, is the answer to Psalm 22.1. Psalm 22.1, again, for those of you who have missed. Psalm 22.1 is a three-part accusation or complaint against the character of God. It accuses God of abandoning he accuses God of not hearing and not caring and not listening. He accuses God of not doing what he has promised to do and forsaking. That's uh, Psalm 22.1. It's a complaint against the character of God. Again, more evidence that Christ would never do that. So back to that question. Why did he quote it? But the answer to Psalm 22.1 is 13.5 of Hebrews, at Deuteronomy 31.6, Genesis 28.15. All the same, but here's what it says. 13.5 uh, has this amazing five negative phrase there. For he himself has said, talking about Christ, I will never, no, never leave you, nor ever forsake you. There's your answer to 22.1 of Psalms. That's the answer to that complaint. Then, Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What's What's that saying? What's Paul trying to do to you? He's trying to teach you. The Holy Spirit using Paul is trying to teach you that Christ God will never forsake you. Never. It's impossible. He won't. Don't accuse him of it. And then he's always the same throughout all time. Forever means what? Forever. There is never a time when he is not the same. Now, that seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? But unfortunately, you go anywhere you want, you will find people who tell you that Christ is constantly changing. Sometimes he's God and then sometimes he's what? Not God. Paul knew that that was going to happen. The Holy Spirit directed him to write, Jesus Christ is the same. So whenever you read about Christ, know that he is the same every time. He's always God. He's never not God. That's why you hear me say that all the time. He's always the same. He's never not the same. And then 13.9. Paul gives you that. He will never leave you. Never, 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 never leave you. He's always, 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 always the same. And then he gives you this at 13.9. Do not be blown about, carried away with various and perverse strange doctrines that tell you otherwise. Learn this. He will never leave you. No, never. Never. He's always the same. He's immutable. He's always God. Don't ever believe anything else. You get that? Ninety percent of your problems in church doctrines will go away. Okay? And again, Paul knew that the apostasy, this great falsehood, this counterfeit, that came out that said that Christ was not always God was coming, and that it would overwhelm the church. That's one of the prophecies of Revelation 3:16. That is the prophecy of the woman uh, and the leaven. That is the in pro- Matthew. That is the prophecy of the mustard bush that becomes this huge monstrosity of a tree that is filled with demonic presences. So. Have no position that ever has that falsehood, even a hint of it, anywhere in you. Have no position that ever has Jesus Christ as anything but the Lord God Almighty, himself in the flesh. Always that way. Never not that. He's always that. He's always the same. Now, that may not have come out right, but hopefully you understand what I was trying to say. So. Why did he quote then the first verse of the hind of the morning? Because everybody goes, well, it confuses me. Why did he do it? He must be talking about himself. Well, no, he can't be talking about himself because Hebrews 13, 5, 13, 8, 13, 9 eliminates it. So you ask a good question. Why did he quote it? Why did he yell out and, and, and it's explosive? I can't, again, I can't duplicate it for you. This, his voice, the voice that launches creation from nothing, why does he yell out in this, in his explosive voice? It's a roar. This complaint. The three accusations that are made by the hind of the morning against the character of God. Why'd he do it? Because he never changes. That's why. That's the answer. Okay? Because Jesus Christ is always the same. Because Jesus Christ is always thinking the same thing and doing the same thing. He's never not thinking about what he's thinking or what he's doing. And he's doing it from the cross when he quotes Psalm 22. one. And he doesn't just quote it. He yells it out in a way that is devastating physically to the people that hear it heard It is so loud. He's focused, he's purposed, it is is you can make the case it is his singular intent of his first advent or his first coming. It is why he came. It's in his name. What's his name? You would say Yeshua or Jesus, but that's not what the Jews would say his name is. What would they say? How would they translate his name? His name is salvation. So if you were to see him and you would go up to him, you would go, essentially, I'm Steve. your salvation. Nice to meet you. He named himself Salvation. It's the answer to the great mystery of Proverbs 30, verse 4. So, in other words, he's saving people. That's what he's doing. He does it all the time. He's saving, he's on the cross, and he's saving the thief. He's saving the Roman execution detail. He saves on the way Simeon the Cyrenian. He's constantly, unceasingly, relentlessly saving. He and I, I can't put it on the board enough. Saving. It is what he's doing. So that is why he is quoting Psalm twenty two one to make sure that he's saving. He doesn't have to make sure he's God. I say things in a human way. I hope you understand that. It's what he does, it's who he is. He's he's if you can I can't emphasize this one fact enough. That one fact that he is always saving everyone that he can, reaching out to everyone. So much of what Christ does and says and teaches clears up when you know that his motive is to save. He's always teaching, he's always saving, and by the way, he's saving while he's judging. It's his name, it's what he does, it's who he is during this first advent. For sure. Now, the second advent, he comes as king and judge. But while he's doing it, he's also doing what? Saving. It's one of the great purposes of the tribulation, worldwide revival, salvation. Therefore, it's beyond obvious that Psalm 22, 1, the first verse of the song entitled The Hind of the Morning is being used by Jesus Christ, the great saver, to save someone. So the correct question then becomes, "Who is he saving? Who is the target of 22:1?" Psalm 22:1 is not is not Jesus Christ complaining about himself. The, the absurdity of that is apparent even to the shallowest of Bible students and Bible scholars. It doesn't stop them because it's a money maker. I make people cry with it, so I'll do it. They'll all feel sorry for for Jesus, and they'll give me money. But they all know what's absurd, just as they know that Jesus Christ is not afraid of death. That's ridiculous. He's God. Again, Christ is the same, always the same. He's always omnipotent. He's always the Lord God Almighty. He cannot fear by definition. Fear cannot coexist with omniscience or omnipotence. So now we get to the easiest of the most obvious questions. Who was, in fact, saved by Christ shouting out Psalm 22.1? That's his plan. That's what he's doing. Who was it that was saved? As a quick aside, the definition of shout. To shout is to utter a sudden, loud cry as to express joy or triumph or to attract attention. That's its very definition. He shouts it out. Because he's expressing joy, he's expressing triumph and he's trying to attract attention. The Lord God Almighty was doing all three. And he's being the same, He's immutable. He would know who was about to be saved. He always knows. John 19:28, John 21:17. He knows who the hind of the morning is. He knows when and how often and who the hind of the morning is, and when the hind of the morning screams out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows where the hind is. He can't help but know. Okay? So there, that now helps us figure out what to do. And last Sunday, I just threw it out there a little bit to. What do you do now to figure out who was the target of the salvation? Who was the target of the Psalm 22-1? You know that the thief was the target of um, of uh, today you will be with me in paradise. You know that the Romans, as we covered before, were the target of Father forgive them. Who is the target? Who is the hind of the morning, essentially? Who is the one that is complaining that God will forsake them or God has forsaken them? Incorrectly, of course. And I said, the, the way you uh, you do this... Because you start running around the Bible, finding what? People who complain that God has abandoned them. and Start putting them together. You also find uh, other things. I'm going to start today, or actually not start, I'm going to go back to Elisha. You might remember we did Elisha and Elisha just before I did this part. And the reason I did Elijah and Elisha is because of the crucial information that those two prophets have with regard to the crucifixion of Christ. They provide information, uh, added information, if you will, to help you understand what's going on um, in the uh, crucifixion process or event. And you should always research Elisha and Elijah whenever you're studying the crucifixion. And if for no other reason, remember that um, Elijah in 1 Kings 1 is told to come down. Essentially, come down now by the soldiers of the Baal king. So that he, is, he is, they scream at him to come down now. And God, Christ in, the, in this case, because Christ was there... Responds with a consuming fire. And the words come down now or come off the mountain or come down here to where we can have you um, uh, um, is almost said word for word to Christ when he's on the cross. Come down. Take yourself down. And, and also with uh, with respect to Elisha, go up bald head. Which as you remember, bald head means leprosy or leper, someone who has leper, leprosy. And that was a mocking directed at Elisha. So I have the go to the come down at Elisha and the go up leper uh, to, uh, at Elisha. And knowing how those fit with the crucifixion, very important. And likewise, uh, the people that had the soldiers of Baal scream at, at uh, Elisha. And I had the soldiers of Baal scream at uh, Elisha. Did I say that right? Sometimes I confuse those. Elijah, Elisha. Both times, soldiers are yelling at them. So, when you get 2 Kings 1 and 2 Kings 2 uh, figured out, it's particularly useful to understanding the dynamics of Christ's crucifixion. And and I hope you all remember that. If you don't, uh, see me afterwards and I'll try to catch you up with that. Anyway, last week I mentioned Elisha had a final miracle. And I connected it to the Roman soldier Who came to stab the body of Christ. And we should reread that section. So let's do that. John 19. Whenever you have a New Testament question, you're always going to have an Old Testament answer. And you're going to have an Old Testament compliment. If Christ has has an incident with a soldier, then I can find somebody else that is a picture of Christ that has incidents with soldiers or a soldier. So here we go, 1931 through 37. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high Sabbath, by the way, that's important to know. How many high Sabbaths were there in the crucifixion week? Do you know, do you know, do you know? I have the weekly Sabbath, which is a Saturday, and then I have Sunday, which was not and then I had Wednesday, which was Passover. Yes, I'm giving you my view. That's a high Sabbath, a sabbaton. Then I have Thursday, which was unleavened bread. Okay, another high Sabbath. Then I had Friday, which was nothing. And then I had Saturday, which was the weekly Sabbath. And then I had Sunday, which was first fruits. So in that, in that week, Saturday to Sunday, or those eight days, I have one, two, three, four, five Sabbaths. Very important to know that. So when it says he was rose the day after the Sabbath, you have to know which Sabbath was the day talking about. Three days and three nights from where he's crucified, I got counting that Wednesday Sabbath. I have four Sabbaths in there. Hardly anyone knows that today. That was common knowledge, a thousand years ago. That's the common knowledge at the when the uh, Plymouth uh, the Plymouth Rock when the Pilgrims came. Everyone knew that. We all know it now. Very important to know that. Okay, so where was it? That the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high Sabbath. Not just a weekly, but a high Sabbath. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Got to get them off of here. Get them out. Why do they want them off? Is it because of the Sabbath? and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other. That's the two thieves who were crucified with him, Christ. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers, and what's now, what do I want to know? How did he get the job? Who is he? What happened to him? But one of the soldiers pierced Christ's side with a spear And immediately, blood and water came out. Now, I can't stress the word immediately enough. Boom! Blood and water comes out. Think fire hydrant. Poof! And he who has seen this has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, so that you may believe. Okay? Believe what? Believe what happened. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken, and another said, another again, again another scripture says, they shall look at him, on him whom they pierced. Now lots of questions with respect to those uh, verses John 19:31 through 37. I've always wondered about the Romans agreeing to break the legs. Cuz that seemed to be odd to me, not something they would want to do. Why wouldn't they want to do it? Because typically, they're crucifying people that have done what? To Roman soldiers. Now, this is Jewish resistance. They have killed Roman soldiers. And they want those guys to be torn to pieces by animals, get their eyes plucked out by birds, and sit there and rot and die a very, very slow, painful death. They want to deter other people from getting the idea killing a Roman soldier is not such a bad thing if you get caught. going on for centuries with every every nationality, especially every army. See, the accepted thought is that the breaking of the legs did what? It facilitated, it accelerated the death of the crucified victim. So, why would the Romans agree to do that to two guys that probably were Jewish resistance, and among other crimes, uh, um, they were killing Romans? Why would the Romans agree to end their suffering? What's going on at this crucifixion that makes it so different? We gotta break these legs, get these people out of here because tomorrow's a high Sabbath. Unleavened bread, sometimes you'll hear it refused, refused, referred to as the second Passover. So if the motive was to end the crucifixion that was going on, and that crucifixion that had just gone on was filled with evidence of what? Filled to the brim with evidence of what? Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He's God there. That's creator, God. Everybody that was there knew that this is an unbelievable event. We've never seen anything like it before. Never again will we see anything like this crucifixion. It was shocking and stunning. Like I said, filled with brim, filled to the brim with evidence. What is Christ doing on the crucifixion? It's what he always does. He's saving people. Every minute he's there, people are getting saved. How many were watching? Thousands, and so you can see the Pharisees have got to get this shut down anyway. If that was the if if that was the motive, that the, that this evidence-filled event is happening before the entire nation of Israel, and is happening also in front of the Roman garrison that is there. It's not just Jews being saved by this crucifixion. There were converts everywhere, amongst everybody. And make no mistake, again, this was an unbelievable testimony as to Jesus Christ's true identity. He is letting everyone know who he really is here. I'm God, in the flesh. You need to be saved now. Hurry. Christ was doing things that were shocking. Things never seen, never heard that were definitive proof that he's God. So I can understand why the Pharisees and the Romans wanted to shut this crucifixion down. I think of it today in these terms. They, they're they told, go there, kill those thieves, get those bodies out of there. Tomorrow's a high Sabbath, let's do it for that, but we got to shut it down. Everybody's dead. Tell everybody it's all dead. It's all over. Show's over. Move along. Nothing to see. Get out of here. Go to the high Sabbath. But again, why? See, I, I see. What's the soldier got here? Well, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. You know, and so if he, I want to kill these guys, why break their legs? I mean, what am I going to get out of that? Once I break their legs, how long are they going to live before they suffocate? See, they can no longer push themselves up. Once their legs are broken, they can't push themselves up and they're going to suffocate really fast. But i got a spear. I I just stab them through the lungs. What do I got to do to break their legs? How, this is a question. How long is the spear question? Anybody ever get the how long is the spear question? Did you ever when you take a Bible class and somebody said how long is the spear question? Sometimes you'll hear it how heavy is the sledgehammer question. How high do I, how high is that, that guy, that thief on that cross? How tall is he? What do I got to do? Pull the cross out of the ground, lower it down, Bust his legs, lay him back up? Or do I build scaffolding, crawl up there on my sledge, smash his leg? How easy is it to, to, to smash and break a human leg? So what, what is this process? And why did they agree to it? And I got a spear, just spear him, it's over, we get them down. Obviously, they're going to die really fast once they break their legs. It's not easy to, to break their legs, but that's the normal protocol because it makes them suffer, but it also makes them die. Now, let me. Uh, this is very important. I don't want to take this down because this is the Hebrew that makes sure you understand the correct definition of the hind. When you understand hashakar, uh, and you'll get to hind most. So I don't want to take that off the board. So I'll take this off the board. That I just put on. You can remember that Christ is always, always saving people. There's never a time when he's not saving somebody. And and, again, once you've got that, you're okay. But here's this breaking legs, or if you will, broken bones and piercing. Did I spell piercing right? Because I can get it wrong. If you wish, you, you could say broken, breaking legs and piercing side with a spear. Why did God want it so that none of his legs, his legs, none of his bones were broken? Now you can say, well, that's part of the Passover lamb prophecy. Okay, that's true. But why? That's just happened to be the case, but he wanted to make sure. He prophesied that none of it, or he made it certain that none of his legs would be, or none of his bones would be broken. Why did he do that? And that's why I asked the question: How, how, what's it take to break a man's bone? Climb up there on something and hit him as hard as you can. Make take four or five swings before you break his leg, so he suffocates. How easy would it be to break Christ's bones? How much power does it take to break the bones of God? How many times are you going to have to hit him? A couple of trillion? No, it's impossible, right? He made sure that that the fact that his legs or bones were not broken, you know that. And he also made sure that you know that the side was pierced by a spear. And you can find the typology, and we'll get to that in a minute. I'll give you the typology. It's very clear. But those details, and these two, the broken bones and the piercing, those are put side by side. They form something. There's two parts to them, two parts of a whole. Breaking of bones, piercing the side of a spear, with a spear. Okay? As you know, again, that's the Passover lamb, which is Exodus 12, 46, Numbers 9, 12. It's also the um, it's Zechariah 12.10. Not Psalm 22. We covered that last week. 22.16. It's not. That is torn off like a lion. Not piercing. Okay, got that? So anyway, I got two events that God wanted to include in his crucifixion. He wanted to make sure that his crucifixion had this no bones or broken element to it, and it has this piercing side with the spear element. So the question again, again, obvious question: Why? What do they mean? Why did he design it this way? Now, let's add in Elisha, Second Kings thirteen twenty. Okay. Now, give you the context without having to read all of it. I have a war that is going on between Israel and Syria. By the way, do I have the potential for a war between Israel and Syria? and again, yes, I do. but I have this war, and elisha is still going is still alive. He dies eventually uh, at the uh, in the midst of the war, if you will and that 's where we pick up the story verse twenty thirteen twenty of second kings. Then Elisha died, and they buried him now. Where did they put him? They put him in a tomb. And the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. So what's happening is these bands would come through and they would terrorize Israel. And there's a long story as to why it goes back to Solomon. We're probably going to have to deal with it. but they're terrorizing. And so and they're killing. The, the Israelite soldiers. So I have a war context here. That's what I want to make sure you know. So it was, as they were burying a man, and that is the Israeli soldiers, that suddenly they spied a band of Syrian raiders coming. I'm adding these words so you keep the, the meaning. And they put the man that they were burying, the Israelites did, in a tomb. And the tomb happened to be the tomb of Elisha. Now, it's my position. They have no idea that's the tomb of Elisha. That fits, because here's Christ on the cross, and they have no idea who he is either. So I think I can make that case pretty easily. And when the man was let down, so they had the body and a rope in all likelihood. So what do we got to do, by the way, right now? We got to find another body, lower down with a rope, right? Now, how hard that going to be? should be able to figure that out really fast. I'll get to that in a minute, maybe next week. These guys, they have a dead body of a dead Israelite soldier. And they lower him into a tomb. And I think they did it because they saw that raiding party come. So this is a compatriot and a colleague. And they knew that raiding party, if they got that body, would do what to it? They would destroy it, defile it, do everything they could to ruin it and make a, a an example out of it. If your body is caught by us, we're going to make sure you're... you're Um, what's done to you is fiendish. And there were a lot of um, emotional issues with regard to the body and the burial of the body that are still there, by the way, in the Middle East. So they spot this. uh, First thing I ask is, how many Israelites did I have here? And then they see a raiding party. And obviously it is a superior force. So how many are are coming? How fast are they moving? Uh, How far away were they? How much time did they have? and they give up burying the body and they lower it into the tomb and it just so happens it's the tomb of elisha and when the man was let down and, and touched the bones of elisha he revived and stood on his feet so i have more question how long ago did he die how long had they been carrying him had they been running from this band had they engaged them previously Were they hauling the body back and said, okay, we can't carry him. They're catching us. There they are. Let's bury him. Let's get, and come back for him later. What's happening? Those are questions that I asked just trying to figure it out. And how, by the way, can I figure it out by asking those questions? I can. What do I do? I go everywhere I can. Where this story, similar elements of it show up. Thank you. But, enough of that. Upon touching the bones of the prophet Elisha, the soldier immediately is resurrected. Now, what does that mean? Why? Why, why has God done this? Now, I want you to go back to John and compare uh, Christ's soldier, if you will. So, I have Elisha's soldier, and I have Christ. And that's a human way of saying it, his soldier. I'm going to compare their soldiers. I also, as I said, I have the man, the lowered lame man, lowered by his friends uh, as well. So I have the lowered body for Elisha and I have the lowered body for Christ. I have to put him into the picture as well. Jesus Christ, who is always saving, he intends to save Everybody that's near him, that is his will, by the way, he said, I wish that none would perish. So he is extending salvation to everyone. He never misses anybody. It is heresy, blasphemy, apostasy to say, oh, didn't he forget the heathen? He's omniscient God. He doesn't forget anybody, ever. You may not know his methods, I may not know his methods, but everybody is extended salvation. That's what he does. So he's saving. He's on the cross. And here comes this Roman soldier. Now, he's dead. What is the condition of his body? Is it going into decay and corruption? It's impossible for a body to go into decay and corruption. It has no sin. Decay and corruption is a human event. Not something that can be applied or applicable to God. Jesus Christ intends to save This Roman soldier, he saved the whole execution detail. I can make that case, and most of you are fully aware of that. But this execution detail knows things that no other Romans know now. They know that they went about trying to kill this man for a long time and were completely unable to do it. They know that Christ was in absolute authority. And they were passengers along for the ride. He took them where he wanted to take them. He took them to the Garden of Golgotha, which as you know it really means Goliath. Which as you know really means Goliath's skull. He took them to the place where Goliath's skull was. They couldn't stop him. If they've got animals pulling the cart, who's running the animals? The animal's going to listen to the Romans, or they're going to listen to their creator God. Nobody does anything that he doesn't want them to do. And the Romans now know it. They went through this, hours of this crucifixion. Never seen anything that even remotely approaches it. And now, kind of the final act of the Romans, if you will, and the final act of Christ on the Romans, a, a soldier is ordered to approach Christ and pierce his side. I want you to consider that. Just by the way, as the side of Christ is opened, just as it was the side of Adam to be opened. So, as the side of the first Adam was opened, so will be the side of the last Adam. And as it was God who opened up the side of the first Adam, who's going to open up the side of the last Adam? God. Can you cut Christ open with a stick? Good luck. It's back to, can you break his bones? Bring a lunch. And this Roman soldier has gone through this experience. And he's been told, go with your spear and stab him with the spear. We'll be over here breaking the legs of the other two guys. You go do that. And I can't help but imagine this soldier. The fear that he must have had after seeing and hearing what he had seen and heard. As you know, when Christ speaks, what happens to Romans? John 18.6, for one place. Every time Christ speaks, what happens to Romans? They fall down. They can't stand up. So do Pharisees, so does everybody. Every time he speaks... So I submit at least twice those two loud voices. Everyone who was at this crucifixion at least twice fell on their faces and had to cover their ears. They're in the dirt. Now your job is to go stab the guy that did that to you. What are you worried about? Is he faking it? I mean, you've got to be absolutely panicked here. And and by the way, this is never in the movies, the dumb movies and the stupid books. They never talk about the power of his voice. His voice was so loud on the fourth and the seventh, the physical, the physics of sound. So loud, you could not, I can, when I get these two subwoofers fired up and I have the, I have almost 10,000 watts of of usable power, about maybe 15 to 18,000, uh, peak power there, a a good 10,000 RMS. I, I have that. I turn those, those speakers on. You will run out of this room. It's physically painful. And you will feel the sound coming. Now, that isn't even close to what Christ did. He moved air in a tremendous volume, tremendous physical pressure. And again, it's never in the books. As you're probably realizing, I'm attempting to get you to purge out all of the Christ-dishonoring nonsense that you have read and seen in movies that is unceasingly bombarding us with respect to this crucifixion. I want you to replace it with that which is Christ-honoring. Remember, he is immutable. He's always the same. There's never a time when he's not the same. Using all those negatives... Because I want you to get used to that language, it's in Hebrews thirteen five. And this is another such place. So I got a soldier in great fear. Any second now he he expects to go face first in the dirt again. By the way, how long were they in the dirt? What was the pressure like? He's got uncontrollable trembling that accompanies fear and awe. He's approaching, consider this. He's approaching who? He's approaching somebody that he knows is not just a man. He's approaching, we know, that he's approaching the Lord God of creation with a what? With a spear. He's got a stick with a pointy end. What could possibly go wrong here? It's not a good plan. And the Roman with dirt all over his face knows this is a bad idea. But it really isn't, is it? Because he's approaching somebody who always saves. It's the race from the boar. He is coming to God in fear and trembling and in awe. How's he doing? He has spent much of the day face down in the dust. And little does he know now. He's about to get a what? A bath. He doesn't know that. He's got a spear. The blood of Christ, it says it. Yeah, I, I find it really good. Does, Christ, does, God, does God need him to open up the side? No. He can't open up the side of God. He doesn't necessarily know that. He's doing what he's ordered. The blood, it says, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. The blood of Christ, the living water that is Christ, immediately flows out. And just as the living water flowed from the smote rock at Exodus 17, the smote rock is on the cross and it is also touched with a piece of wood. So you got that wonderful typology. I have the staff of Moses touching the smote rock, Exodus 17. I have the Roman soldier touching the rock with a stick. So you get that picture. And what happens to the water? Whoosh! It comes out. What did the Israelites do? Everyone drank the water. What happened to this Roman soldier? Again, how high is the cross? How high is Christ? Where did he have to be? How long is this spear? If he's, he has to be high enough, doesn't he, for everybody to see them. That was the point of it. You pushed them up there so they were hard to reach, but still accessible. You didn't want them cut down. And he guarded them most of the time until the animals did their job. And then, then they left them. Sometimes, other times, it depends on the, on the, on the uh, crime. But he's up there enough that I will reach up with a spear. Okay, so how close do I have to get? I asked this last week. The water comes out immediately, and it comes out, and the blood gushed out. And I made the case last week that it hit that soldier. That Roman who had drawn the short straw, I think, ended up with the blood of Christ on top of him, literally and physically. That's a good deal. You don't get a better deal than that. He's coming towards Christ with fear and awe. I believe I can make that case. I'm just giving you the brief uh, uh, position today. Trembling as he should, and he is covered by the blood. And he knows who this is. He knows this is not a normal person. Now, where I left off last week was pretty much there, so now we'll start the sermon. I'm kidding. What happened next? When he gets covered with that blood, what happens next? See, when the blood flows out, how much blood got on him? And by the way, could I see when the side was opened up, could I look inside like Thomas looked inside? Can I see something that's in there? What's in there? He shows you on the Mount of Transfiguration. What's inside him? If he opens himself up, what's there? The Shekinah glory of God. If you will, the primal light. P-R-I-M-E-V-A-L. The first light. He is the light of the world. So Jesus Christ has this one final gift for his Romans. He releases his blood onto this Roman. And if you were there and you were part of that Roman detail and you saw this, what would you do? I submit that the Romans who... um, had mocked him and sneered at him and thought they had the ability to kill him. By now, they're totally, completely transformed, and they rushed, not away from the blood, but towards the blood. That's my submission to you. I know the centurion, uh, centurion had already glorified him, Mark fifteen thirty nine, And he said, truly, this was the Son of God, this man, the Son of God. That's a messianic term that means Messiah. This is the king of the world. And the Roman centurion yells that. If he's heard, and he yells it out, if he's heard what happens to him, he's killed. This is the king of the world. So, he's convinced. And this final gift of blood had to have been far greater than the dim portrait that was Elisha's soldier. Elisha's soldier comes back to life. Elisha's soldier was the type of this event. Christ's soldier, Christ soldiers is a fulfillment. What happened to those guys? Who there would have rejected the life-giving blood of Christ? And I don't believe those Romans did that. Not these guys. They were forgiven, and now they're being taught the reality of who the person of Christ truly is. He's saving them. He's always saving them. I came to the conclusion eventually, after spending time on this, over, over the years that the Roman soldier with the stick was probably assigned to that detail because he was unable or unfit uh, for combat. and uh, probably maimed, probably a little older, probably a low rank. and Christ does what. He saves the hindmost. That's who he goes after. Does't go after the proud, Goes after the hindmost, the weak, the feeble, the furthest away. He calls, and this one guy came with a spear. But he was nonetheless drawn. And how merciful is our God. So what's the reason for the piercing? Other than the typology, I know, I get the typology. I know the church is formed out of Adam. I know the church is formed out of the side of Christ. I'm sorry, the the bride of Adam, Eve, is formed out of Adam. The church is formed out of the second Adam, out of the side. I see that relationship. This is a prophecy. But what's the reason for it? There's a reason. God intends to show um, something. And that which was intended, by the way, by the Jews and the Romans uh, for evil, the crucifixion, the attempted execution of God in the flesh, was turned into an outpouring, a flood of his blood of mercy and love. And that's what God does. He turns evil into good. And by the way, we're the evil in that sentence. He's turning us into good. He's always doing that, which is why he's quoted, why he quoted the hind of the morning. Because he's turning people into saved, righteous beings. He's fixing us. He's a surgeon. He's the doctor, if you will. Every time he says something from that cross, he's doing it. Uh, Terry told me I'm out of time. Every time he says something from that cross, he's saving somebody. I thirst. Who got saved when he said I thirst? Woman, behold thy son. Behold thy mother. Who got saved when he said that? It's finished. Who got saved? Father, into your hands. Who got saved? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who got saved? All of it is about him saving somebody. None of it is about himself. All seven sayings of the cross from Christ save somebody. It's what he does. It's his purpose. He's always the same. Always doing the same. Okay? So next week, we'll deal with this. What is the significance of the broken bones? What do bones signify? What do broken bones signify? What does piercing signify? What does the side signify? Why the spear? What does that signify? What does this have to do with Zechariah and mourning? Because he says, blessed are those who mourn. That's, that's an element of this piercing is this mourning for something. Okay? Mourning for those whom they pierce. I know I got the two sermons of Peter to get done in this. Because you may have the wrong conclusion with the two sermons of Peter. I've got to deal with the worm again, and the crimson, the crimson worm, and the and the and the poisonous plant again. I've got all of that to do, uh, and um, a lot more that I don't have at the top of my head. So next week, that's where we'll go. Let's rise and be dismissed.